Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Learner's Corner. This is the podcast for lifelong learners where we learn from anything and everything. My name is Caleb Mason. My name may or may not be Todd Ixenball. Caleb, I feel like we're getting a little rehearsed with our opening. Actually, you didn't say AKA the Todd Father, so we're not. Anyway, we have a great episode for you today. Today, we are talking with Priya Parker. Now, Priya is the founder of Thrive Labs, at which she helps activists, elected officials, corporate, ex- corporate executives, educators, and philanthropists create transformative gatherings. She works with teams and leaders across technology, business, the arts, fashion, and politics, clarify their vision for the future, and build meaningful, purpose-driven communities. She is also the author of the newly released book, The Art of Gathering, How and Why We Gather Matters. Caleb, sometimes I feel like you memorize all that stuff. It's just really impressive. I'm actually watching him read it off of a thing, so that's fine. But, um... So the thing that I loved about this interview is the fact that she really uh, she helped me kind of think through some of the things that that you know I do in church world uh, that I applied it to church world and it really helped me think through with gatherings and how we do things and how different things cue um, people to to react in certain ways and so and then in meetings too and so it super helpful um, I'm really excited to be able to release this but Caleb before we get into the interview we have something we have to do we have our learner's corner approved resource of the week yes my resource of the week that i'm going to recommend actually just recently came out and it is an ebook from one of our previous guests i don't know if you've seen this recently or not todd but it's called 15 lessons from 15 years of multi-site and it's by jeff henderson it just came out if you want to find the link to it, you can go through um, our show notes and pick that out. Jeff Henderson, but shout out. It's a really short ebook about the 15 lessons that he's learned in his time of leading at a multi-site church. And so a- it is really interesting. I always love hearing stuff like that and getting his perspective on stuff. Also, if you want to check out our previous episode, you can look for our show notes and our conversation with Jeff. Jeff is a great guy. I want, like, I, w- I want one day for Jeff to just adopt me. That'll be great. All right, that's not weird at so all. So that has been your, that has been your learner's corner approved resource of the week. As we said, we have a great conversation with Priya that we're. Well, Priya, we're so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast to talk about your new book. Thank you for having me. You know, as as we get started, you know, what made you want to write this? So my book, it's called The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters. And I wanted to write it because, frankly, um, I spent a lot of time going to all types of gatherings, whether conferences or meetings or um, parties or, um, frankly, even funerals that um, I felt that because of the way they were designed, they could have been much better. And I think in so many of our, the moments of our collective life, um, we kind of hope to be inspired or moved or, you know, provoked in a good way. And yet so much of our time that we spent together um, tends to be, you know, if not wasted, at least not optimized. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wrote this book really to help anyone and everyone whether they're a guest or whether they're a host, um, better understand what makes really fantastic gatherings tick. 
Okay, so I have a question. If you're like, do you find yourself sitting in a lot of meetings or a lot of gatherings sometimes thinking, if only this person would know this one thing, it would make it so much better. Yes. <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm a, my, I'm a professional facilitator. So my, my work is to, um, basically help groups connect in a way that they wouldn't otherwise. And so when I'm attending places, I mean, it's a blessing and a curse. And when I'm attending other <laughs> gatherings, I, it's, it's almost like OCD. I, I can't not see <laughs> what's, you know, what's, what could be improved. Mm-hmm. And then do you, do you ever like, cause I'm just curious. Cause I, cause I, I think I'm wired a little bit like you too, is that, you know, I experienced something and it's almost like, man, if, if you only would have done this one thing or this one thing differently, then, then I feel like it could have gone better. Do you have, like, do you ever find yourself like giving them that feedback? And if so, like how, like how to, how do you do that? Yeah. I mean, it depends on if people are open or not. Um, but I think most people, you know, it, it takes a lot to gather people and it takes time. It takes effort, resources. And most people, whether you're doing a meeting or in your office or your work or, um, you know, having people over for your birthday party, like you're doing it at some level because you care um, and you want to make it good. And so when people are open to kind of hearing, you know, what they could do better, I, you know, I tell them um, <laughs> or I share with them. And, I, you know, I'll just give you a couple of examples. So, um, one of the things that, um, particularly conferences don't do well, um, is connect guests or attendees to each other. So most conferences, you know, one goes to, whether it's for, um, you know, like an innovation or any ideas conference or a conference through your work, um, conference planners tend to think about the connection between the speaker and the audience or the host and the audience. So they spend a lot of time you know, preparing the panelists or booking the speakers. Um, and all of the focus is on the, is on the relationship between the one to the many. So the person on stage and then to the audience. So even if like a speaker speaks at the end, there's a, you know, Q and a, um, which is the time for an audience to, to ask questions. It's still focused on the relationship between the audience and the speaker. And one very simple um, improvement can be to think about not only the relationship between the speaker and the audience, but the relationship of the audience to each other. Um, and so, you know, a very simple example could be at the beginning of a, um, a presentation at a conference, before getting up there and having the speaker talk, to ask the question, the audience, you know, two or three questions. Um, and have them turn to the person next to them and answer them. Um, mm. And and it's a very simple way to actually ignite your audience to think about not just what they want to learn from the speaker, but that it's okay to talk to the strangers next to next to you. Um, a huge part of what what most people don't think about before a before an event is how how many simple things you can do to basically prime people to behave in a different way than they would otherwise. Um, so, so that's one example. Um, another one is the number of, of events and whether this is a business meeting or a conference or frankly, a funeral. Um, I've been to a funeral where this has happened, where you start the, you, the, the kind of the opening moment is saved for logistics. Mm. Um, so I was recently at a funeral of a, of a dear old mentor of mine and the minister got on stage and, um, and or got to the pulpit 
I guess it was in a church and he, um, you know, we were all very mournful to be there, but also very moved. It was a, it was, it was a you know, packed church. And, um, he got up there and he took a deep breath and we all kind of leaned in. And then he said, now, before we start, I just wanted to let you know that, um, there's actually not parking in the rec center where the uh, reception is. So if after the funeral, you could just keep your parks cars in the parking lot and walk over together, we would really appreciate it. Um, and this is at a funeral and, you know, let alone the conferences that start with the, you know, there's a white van in the driveway with your parking, you know, with your lights on, could you please go and turn them off? And so a huge, and these are all very subtle things, but a huge thing I tell, you know, my friends and, and the people that I work with, my clients is never start any event with logistics. That's a big one for, you know, in my world, in church world. Mm-hmm. That's a very big temptation to do that. Mm-hmm. That's that's so, that's interesting. How do you see it? How do you? What's your experience with that? So, um, a lot of times churches, uh, and this is, and, and I guess there's things to this, but a lot of times um, you'll you'll go through the first three worship songs, and then mm-hmm. like before the the pastor starts into his sermon, somebody will get up on stage and go through the announcements. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. They'll they'll go through the announcements, and it kind of kills like. It kills the, the vibe. The, it kills it. Totally kills it. And so, yeah. and and then there's like you've bottomed it out, but now everybody has to emotionally get back up for exactly. for, for the message. Yeah. Exactly. That's, yeah. that's well, really. It'll even happen sometimes to where they'll start. They'll start out with the announcements too, and it starts yeah. so low, starts so exactly. low. Yeah. And it's and then to be fair, I mean, we've all done it. I've definitely done it. It's yeah. it's coming from the perspective of. Let me not forget to tell people this, right? Let me get these a few housekeeping things out of the way. It comes from a good place. But what you said is completely right and so insightful that it that what we tend to forget is the emotional arc that we're carrying people through. And when you start with I mean, I would say a church that starts with three songs and then goes into announcements is better than a church that starts with announcements. You know, at oh, least you started the song. Really? Um That's interesting. But, but um, you know, part of the, part of the problem is you, um, you do need to do logistics at some point, right. the, the art is knowing when, and, you know, one of the, um, a church that I love to go to in New York is, um, Abyssinian Baptist church, um, yep. and in Harlem, Reverend Calvin Butts, and yep. he's a master of making announcements interesting. And you can, you can kind of stream it online to see what he does, but he makes them funny. They're well-placed. Um, they are, I remember one of the sermons I attended, he said something like, um, there was a car outside that was parked, um, you know, in an improper place. And he made a joke afterwards and said, and I, it was Christmas time. And he said, the windows are down. You better, you know, you better run out and get it. Otherwise, you know, someone's going to steal all your presents mm. and everyone laughed, you know? And so even, even the fact that, um, he's he uses humor throughout his announcements makes the makes it still feel relatively kind of joyous. Um, sure. And the second thing is he weaves he often weaves in you know I, at a lot of churches there's a moment either in the beginning or the end of you know peace be with you or um, or just greeting greeting your neighbor. Mm-hmm. So there's ways to make community announcements still connect connect people to each other. Another example is asking. Uh, the congregation to give uh, to give their announcements, and it in, in, involves people 
um, in your announcements, both the person who's sharing the announcement gets kind of nervous and knows that they have to you know, speak in front of the congregation, but also everyone around that person physically, you know, the five people to the left and right and front and back, they're also on their best behavior because the whole church is looking at them. Right. You know, so there's certain ways you can find to make announcements interesting and still build the emotional arc and people's level of engagement in why they're there. Yeah. So you kind of you kind of mentioned that you know not really not taking not really thinking about announcements too much is one thing that most people don't think about. What might be another thing or two that most people don't think about whenever it comes to gathering or getting together? Mm-hmm. You know, another thing that people tend to not think about um, is uh, how to make an invitation um, so that people show up in the way you want them to show up. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, if you think about invitations that you send out, and this could be, you know, a calendar evite for a for a meeting at three o'clock, you know, in your workplace, or it could be for a, you know, 25th birthday party um, or anything in between, it, the invitation tends to focus again on logistics, time, date, place. And while all of that is, is important, people need to know how to get, you know, where and when your mm-hmm. event is. We tend to, again, it's the same principle. We tend to not think about what else to say in the invitation that would, you know, basically get people in the mood for whatever it is that you're doing. And it's a huge overlooked opportunity. So you know, one example, um, this is from the book. There's a, uh, one of the people. So in the book, I interview over a hundred different types of gatherers, um, in all walks of life to understand how, what they do to create transformative experiences. And so one of the, and I interviewed, um, you know, rabbis, teachers, um, choreographers of Circus Soleil, camp directors of summer camps, um, hockey coaches, and one of the people I interviewed was a guy named Michelle Laprie, and he's a um, choreographer and director at Circus Soleil. And he gave me this simple example in his own life um, where he had a he wanted to do an end the end of the year party, Christmas party, and he but he was traveling a lot and didn't have time to decorate his tree. And so he sent out an invitation to twelve or fourteen friends. Um, and he said in the invitation, please, you know, come join me on such and such date. And before you come, all I ask is that you send me two um, photographs of your, of your happiest moments, moments of happiness of the past year. Just send me two photographs. And that was the invitation. And when they showed up, he had printed out everybody's two photographs and stuck them on ornaments and put them on the tree. So when the guests came in, the first thing they saw was all of these beautiful moments of happiness, everything from, you know, two people in front of a um, sold sign of a house to, um, a, you know, family vacation to, uh, you know, a juggler and wearing an acrobat suit. Um, and it immediately connected these 12 people. They didn't all know each other and gave them this kind of moment of focus. And it was all from what he did in the invitation. And so it's a so so thinking about how you can prime people ahead of time um, beyond logistics to get them to to either bring something or get them to do something so that when they show up they're already primed to show that part of themselves. Hmm. So um, when we're when we're talking about meetings and uh, gathering, and you've talked about different things that people. 
um, don't necessarily think about. What are so? Let's go to this. What are what are in, the ingredients to a good meaningful gathering? So you talked a little bit about that meaningful moment that 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 per, those the person created. But what are some? What are other good meaningful ingredients that that create that that gathering? Mm-hmm. Um, so one is well, one is the the host. Um, accepts his or her own power. <laughs> and what I mean by that is one of the things I think that um, tends to stifle or prevent gatherings from being great is hosts trying to be too chill. Oh, um, so, yeah. the, so the attitude of chill, because I kind of, you know, it's all cool, like whatever, yeah. like everyone's just going to do their own thing, like I don't want to impose. It's actually very bad for groups. Um, because if you're inviting, if you, if you decide to go ahead and invite people, and this is whether you're running a meeting or whether you're, um, like hosting, you know, a draft, you know, a draft party, Mm -hmm. draft day, um, you are in charge and it doesn't mean that you have to be dogmatic and you don't have to be a dictator, but basically there's, you know, one of the, one of the reasons I think gatherings are so fascinating is because anyone can host them and and this is can informally or formally um and for that moment of time for the beginning the middle and end it's kind of goes without saying that you're in charge and um and one of the things that tends to not lead to meaningful gatherings is hosts basically not leading their guests so i have this this concept i call generous authority and it's basically there's three there's three parts of it one is to uh, protect your guests, one is to um, connect your guests, and one is to equalize your guests. Hmm. And um, to protect your guests, the example that I love is the Alamo Draft House. Um, have you all ever been to one or know about it? No, I know, huh? It's a it's a chain of movie theaters that was started in Austin, Texas, and is now I think in a dozen cities around the country. Um, and they're unique in a number of ways. One of them being that they serve uh, beer and food like in the seats. Um, but the other is that they have a no talking rule. And, you know, if you go to any other movie theaters, every, you know, all the movie theaters have some no talking rule. There's a little movie on, um, you know, on the screen that says, please don't talking, please don't talk this, you know, put away your cell phones, blah, blah, blah. But the problem is in most movie theaters, if somebody talks on the phone, there's no one there to enforce the rule. It becomes like <laughs> mob justice, right? Do you, yeah. do you turn around? Do you, do you shush them? Do you, you know, if they don't, if they don't be quiet, do you like, you know, do you get in a fight? Um, and at the Alamo, what happens is if somebody is either pulls out their phone or talks, they get one warning from the Alamo staff. And if they do it again, they actually get kicked out. And it seems kind of extreme. Um, but one, it works. And the second, what the Alamo understands is they're not being mean to that guest. They're protecting everybody else, um, from that guest. And they're preserving the purpose of their gathering, which is to help people connect with the magic of the movies. Mm. And so similarly, one of the things that people don't do when they host, and this is, again, it can be in a work context or it can be in a, in a play context is that when you, is a host, if there's kind of either bad behavior or somebody is talking too much or, you know, even a church meeting, you know, my, my parents or my father and stepmother belong to a church, um, in Virginia and they have a lot of 
trainings, like uh, church volunteer trainings or marriage mentor trainings. And um, one of the dynamics in any group that happens is there's often people who talk more than others, or there's people who talk a lot and don't realize that no one else has airtime. And part of a, a when a host doesn't actually do something to pause that person or to, you know, kind of politely get them to stop talking, they're doing a disservice to their to other people. And so one of the biggest things for a, that for a host and for a meaningful gathering is for the host to own their power. Um, and then I would say the two other elements of meaningful gatherings is um, what I call heat um, and uh, and also the stranger spirit, so sort of intimacy. So he, heat and intimacy, and they're two sides of, of, of a coin. Um, heat is basically the idea that in any gathering um, that tends to be meaningful, there's some amount of risk involved. And so, you know, it could be physical risk. So organizations like Tough Mudders, um, that does these kind of like weekend kind of collective marathons, um, or, you know, uh, you know, kayaking together, there could be, it could be physical risk. It could be emotional risk. You're asking people to kind of share something of themselves, or it could be having people do things that may lead to conflict. Um, so, uh, talking about things in a family or at a family reunion or, um, with your colleagues that, uh, that, that is a heated topic, um, mm -hmm. tends to actually create very meaningful gatherings. So one of the things that, again, mistakes we make, and I've you know, made it myself plenty of times is we tend to avoid the things that, um, that might rile people up. And obviously, while you should do it, you know, to, you should have some safety around it and, and, and be kind of conscious about how you do it. Um, bringing some heat into the into your gatherings, whether it's talking about you're talking about things that people care about, um, tends to create meaningful gatherings. So, hmm. you know, you were talking about church earlier, you know, often in um, community meetings, the most interesting and the most meaningful ones are the ones where a group is willing to talk about something that's controversial. Yeah. Um, and people remember it and it's meaningful because it's controversial because it's usually hitting on some element about what people care about or their values. We were literally just talking about that before we started recording. Yep. Really? <laughs> we Say really more. Were. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, one of, one of the, one of the things that, um, that I've just found myself wanting to talk about is some of these more, you know, like like race, like racial racial reconciliation, for mm -hmm. instance, and us not to be controversial. <laughs> mm -hmm, That's mm -hmm. what it is. My problem is I just don't see it as controversial. <laughs> um, but I just want to I just want to talk about it because it's out there anyway, and that it's important for us to talk about. And so, just creating creating the space so that um, so that we can have these conversations and people won't be afraid to have these types of conversations. Cause I think one of, you know, I think one of my, I guess my theories is, is that, you know, whenever you don't talk about something there, there becomes fear surrounded, surrounded. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it becomes awkward for people to talk about. And then it's, and then it's almost like a never ending cycle that you don't mm -hmm. talk about it because you're afraid to talk about it. And then because you don't keep talking about it, you become it even becomes more bigger. Yeah. Right. Bigger and bigger and bigger. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I don't know if you saw um, the reports last week, the um, the NFL players and um, owners, team owners met for this kind of summit to talk about the Colin Kaepernick 
leaning, uh, kneeling, yep. you know, all the kneeling stuff. Did yep. you guys watch, read about the meeting? I, no, I, I briefly just saw that it happened. Yeah, so super interesting. You know, I I tend to geek out over this stuff. So I whenever whenever there's details about any meeting like this, I'm like, you know, pouring over the description yeah. of like who said what, when, and how is it structured. So one of the things that was so interesting to me about the report on the meeting was um, th- there was an article I read in the this in the New York Times that basically said like the big headline was they all talked but no one was really listening to each other. <laughs> And they were talking past each other. And I read, you know, some of the transcripts because the tapes were leaked. And, you know, one an owner may say something like, um, "I'm I, this was not verbatim. I can't remember exactly what they say, but they may say something like, you know, what we really need to do is like stop, stop the kneeling because it's upsetting. You know, it's affecting the it's affecting the league. It's upsetting our our, you know, our fans. It's it's this isn't the place for this. And then a player may say, um, well, well, uh, you know, Colin, why is Colin being blacklisted? Um, you know, why, why aren't any of you actually putting him back on a team? He's being blacklisted for what he's doing. It's not fair. And then another owner may say, um, what we really need to do is talk about positive change. You know, and basically, they kind of kept going back and forth, but they were talking around each other. And so part of, you know, if you're going to have... A gather. If you're going to bring heat into your gathering, you also need to have some structure around it so that people are actually really listening to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, you know, perhaps even a facilitator to help kind of you do that or some person, it, does, it can be from within the community whose job is to help people really kind of listen to each other. Um, so if you were to, for example, talk more about race, you know, I don't know if you're talking about on the show or, yeah. or in what context, um, I think a huge part of it is to, you know, race is a extremely hot issue in our country and has been frankly for the last 400 years. So <laughs> yeah. a, this is not a new topic, but we are um, in part because of the various perspectives people have, but also the language different people use, we've become unable to actually talk about it because in part, um, we don't have a common set of you know, language or phrases to, to use so that you can even get past defending each other to try to understand you know, where people are coming from. Um, and so you know, if you all were to talk more about uh, race, I would suggest, or have your callers, you know, respond or your listeners respond. I would suggest just having a few ground rules about how do we do this? Well, how do we do this with civility? Uh, you know, can you have, call a timeout? If you say something, if you say something that offends somebody, like invite the person to say, Hey, like that hurts. Like, ouch. You know, I come from convict resolution where like the word, like just literally having in, in group convict resolution, having, getting somebody to be willing to say "ouch" when they hear something that offends or hurts them is huge progress. Yeah, sure. Um, one of the things I wanted to go back just for a minute because one of the things that that you talked about was excluding people, um, mm-hmm. or like you, you gave the example of of the movie theater, and it almost sounds like it may have been helpful for some of the folks at this NFL meeting to have been excluded. But one of the <laughs> it's kind of it it kind of like is something that that people try to fight from right fight against right like. We want to have an inclusivity, and we want everybody to have a place at the table. Um, but one of the things that you talk about towards the beginning of your book is how sometimes we need to include the right people and exclude the wrong, like, and and exclude people who we know won't be mm-hmm. beneficial, um, mm-hmm. who really shouldn't be at the gathering. How, how do we do that kindly? 
Yeah, beautiful question. So, you know, part of um, there's, you know, there's these sayings that you know I grew up with definitely, which is, you know, the more the merrier, and just sort of you know always include and um, and while that spirit is right, um, one of the problems that you know many gatherings suffer from is that the pe- people who aren't related to the purpose kind of get brought along or, or we feel awkward, not inviting. And it kind of dilutes, it dilutes the gathering. And so the first thing I would say is to exclude. Well, you have to know what the purpose of your gathering is. Mm. So I'm not saying you should exclude per exclude people for exclusion's sake. Um, and particularly not for, you know, one of the huge problems in companies is actually who's not in the room, not who's in the room. If you look at, you know, what's happening right now with Nike and, and, um, you know, they're kind of grappling at the top with senior leadership, um, in terms of, uh, it being kind of continually male dominated and not having a way to actually have women, you know, in senior leadership teams, uh, positions or in the basketball division, which is like a really important division at Nike. Um, you know, we have a lot of problems with exclusion, but thoughtful exclusion is not one of them. Um, and so what I say, you know, one thing is whether, again, whether it's your birthday and you say, what's the purpose of my birthday party this year? When I say that people kind of laugh, <laughs> but I'm serious. And, and your birthday party could be to, you know, to just have a great time is what I would call a weak purpose. Um, I, I would, you know, say to have a good time for what is it to have a good time with, um, new friends with old friends? Is it to, unwind? Is it to do something that scares you? Is it to get over a fear? Um, and part of the reason why that has helpful is because it answers the who question. So like who in my life would be interested in going on an adventure with me for my birthday party? What if we decided to go on a hiking weekend instead of having a big party? Um, so part of exclusion starts with purpose. Um, you know, if you, for example, are uh, running a, running a meeting in your, um, or if somebody is running a meeting in their company and they're trying to figure out, you know, really focus on, uh, starting a new product, you know, designing a new product. Um, the, they need to figure out, okay, what's the purpose of this meeting is the purpose to figure out is to innovate on our product. And if it is, maybe we should be inviting people who aren't usually in the room because the products that we've been designing have been kind of the same. Um, and you may want to actually exclude the usual characters and purposely invite, you know, all customers and do a hackathon to design a new product. I mean, I'm making this up, but basically what happens in a lot of gatherings is because people don't necessarily know their purpose. They just kind of, we, we kind of invite everyone. Um, and it's hard in some ways to connect when there's not a point of focus. Hmm. I, I run into that, by the way, all the time, um, just kind of in the world that I run into. So that, that resonates with me. One of the statements that you make in the book is that good exclusion activates diversity. And you've touched on this a little bit. Um, but that's something that a lot, I think a lot of folks, again, would kind of come up against. Why, why do you say that's the case? And I know you touched on it a little bit, but could you just further mm-hmm. go into it a little bit more with us? Sure. So, um, you know, I give two examples in the book. One is a um, retirement community um, in Ohio, um, called, uh, Judson Manor. And, um, the example I give in terms of exclusion is they started an experiment where they invited, um, music students from the, I think it was the Cleveland Institute of Music, um, to live with them, um, rent free. 
in exchange for um, giving recitals and helping helping around the retirement home, kind of befriending and being with 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 the with the you know senior folks. And part of the reason I believe it worked is because there was a specific there was a specific relationship between those they were inviting and those who were in the home, and that is old, young. Um, so these college students were all, you know, 21, 22, 23. They had a lot of time. Um, they, uh, they could really benefit from spending time with kind of older, um, people who have, who have, you know, lived much longer and could give them advice. Um, but they were also music students. And so there was this very specific line around which the young and the old could bond, which was music. So if, for example, the, um, the community had invited, you know, any college students and people in their 30s and people in their 40s, um, there can be a dilution with the of the engagement because there's not a point of focus. Um, you know, and so whenever exclusion activates diversity, what I mean by that is when you have two different populations come together, there's sometimes a lot more to kind of talk about and again focus on than if there's you know, 12 different types of people in the room. Um, another example I give, you know, when I was in college, I went to the University of Virginia and I got involved with, with racial dialogue groups. And we, um, this is in 2001, we started a number of different student run groups, um, to see if we could talk openly about race with other, with people who were different from us, with different racial backgrounds. And in the, at least Virginian context, it's like, it's a very loaded, it's a very loaded, um, topic. And one of the things that we found as student moderators over time was that the best groups were the one that actually, again, had a very specific focus. So we had, most of the groups were multiracial. So you could have, you know, black, white, Latina, Indian, um, you know, Asian, whatever in the group, international, domestic students, American students. Um, and then we had two different groups that were very specific. So we had one Jewish Arab group, and then we had one, what they called themselves a black, white group. And those two groups, the ones that had a specific focus, a specific conflict line, if you will, were the ones that the moderators reported back week after week, how lively, how engaging, how provocative and how transformative those conversations were, in part because, again, there was a focus. Mm. So another thing that I want to ask you about is talk about how the size of a group impacts, you know, the quality and the experience of the meeting or gathering that you're having. Mm-hmm. It's a great question. So um, there are kind of you know back of the envelope rules um, <laughs> for for different group sizes and what they're good for. Um, so groups of six, I'll go from small to large. Groups of six tend to be great um, for, and I define. I should just pause and say I define a gathering as um, anytime three or more are gathered. Um, but what I'm really talking about is group dynamics, which tend to be you know four, five, six uh, on up. Um, so I'll start with a number of six. Six tends to be great for group intimacy, for people having time to kind of share, you know, share themselves to all bond with each other. Um, I know, I mean, we're talking about church a lot today. In, in churches, the kind of groups of six tend to be something that's popular at a lot of churches, which are smaller groups for the congregation to meet each other um, outside of church in a more meaningful way, prayer groups. Um, the the negative the drawback of groups of six is that they 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 can't really carry any sort of dead weight. So if somebody's not engaged or 
um, you know, at a dinner or, or at a meeting, you know, it's, um, then you have, you know, 20% or, you know, something like that of people that's kind of not there. So, um, and then eight to 12 is great for a group conversation, um, lively, fun, but still small enough that everyone kind of gets a, you know, gets a chance to kind of be part of it. Um, and then, you know, 20 to 30 is, is more of a party, um, and kind of like energizing. So one of the, in, in your personal life, one of the decisions I know, you know, I've seen people make a lot is for, again, the birthday party, a simple example, or, or, you know, if they're hosting brunch at your, you know, your apartment or, um, at a restaurant is whether or not to do, to invite like 20 or 30 friends and all just kind of like hang out or whether to be able to actually sit down around a table. Um, and those are very, very different, you know, gatherings, even if you have like, if you're in a book club or if you're a part of a meetup or, um, if you, you know, any type of kind of extracurricular group, uh, you know, eight to 12, you can still really have one conversation if people want to, as a group of experience and, you know, you sit, you sit around and all perhaps are all doing something, but you you can still kind of talk, um, together at 20 or 30 people start pairing off. So in facilitator circles, whenever there's a conference and, and you need to kind of take in a group of facilitators to um, facilitate small group discussions, we always divide the number of people in the room by 12 and assign either one or two facilitators, depending on the content of the conversation, to each group. Um, because the idea is sort of a group of 12 is sort of the max that you can get and still have a, a good conversation with a group if it's well run. That, that makes so much sense. So, and actually, I'll, I'll just say with the last thing is, you know, weddings and some of your um, listeners may, you know, be getting married or going to weddings. You know, some weddings are super meaningful and beautiful and you kind of leave meeting a lot of new people and kind of feel like, wow, that's a really great wedding. And others kind of blur into the rest, you know, it's mm-hmm. kind of the same thing over and over again. And um, one of the things, you know, when I was getting married, um, I learned this from from the uh, woman who ran the hotel where my husband and I got married was, um, you know, she, she says 120 people is sort of the, is like this beautiful size because it still feels like this like roaring party, but it's small enough where over the course of a few days, everybody can make eye contact with each other. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. I'm just thinking in terms of church world, uh, which is kind of where I, where I come from and, and wow, there's a lot of, of ways to be able to use that. Um, Absolutely. As you, as I'm thinking through structuring things, like there's so many ways to use that. Thank absolutely. Thank, thanks for that. Um, yeah, absolutely. Can, can you talk to us a little bit the, about the role of the host and what they should or shouldn't do? Um, sure. Can you say a little more? Yeah. So, so the host of of a gathering, um, and this could be a uh, couple of examples. Um, the person who who's putting to, who's kind of leading uh, a meeting um, at work, or um, a person who's who's um, putting together a party. What are what are some things in terms of maybe even uh, if you want to go into in, inviting or how they run the the meeting or the the party or whatever? What are some things that they shouldn't shouldn't do? And again, I know that we've talked a little bit about this, um, but I'm mm-hmm. really just interested in in hearing from you about people who are hosting an event or hosting a party or hosting a meeting. Um, what are what are some things to think about? Sure. So, um, you know, one 
at some level, I guess a, a simpler way to frame it is to think about that you're the beginning, the middle, and the end of your gathering. Um, so a couple of things for the host. The beginning is the beginning starts well before people arrive. The beginning of your gathering starts at what I call the moment of discovery. So the moment your guest like opens the invitation or opens the you know calendar invite and realizes that there's something in the future that they've been invited to. And, and that you're hosting them really from that moment of discovery until the time they walk in your door. Um, and you can actually control a lot more of that time um, than, than we think about. So one of the, you know, most people, if you look at event planning sites or um, blogs that talk about, you know, how do you, um, you know, 10 steps to host a perfect dinner party or, you know, a birthday party or whatever meeting, a lot of it focuses on again on the um, on the things rather than the people. So you know, there's 27 points about how to uh, what food you should get and what drink you should get and how you should set the table and you know where like what day you should start um, sending out the RSVPs and basically all of these kind of tasks. How do you um, you know, if you're cooking baby back ribs for 120 people barbecue, like how do you cook the baby back ribs? And not that you don't need to have food there, but, um, a huge thing I would say is focus on again, how do you prime your people and how, like when you are, what are the moments of connection when you're reaching out to your guests, um, to remind them about the party or whatever it is that you can prime them in a way that gets them excited for it and not just focusing on, um, preparing the, the things. Um, a second thing I'd say is um, the moment people do walk in your door, if you're still thinking about the beginning of a gathering, it's sort of this milling around time. So whether it's, you know, whether it's at a church youth group or whether it's um, at a conference or whether you're hosting like a, you know, developers meeting, um, there's the start time. So say it's like 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And then there's often time people often show up, you know, 2.50, 2.45, 2.55. And there's this kind of milling around time. And one of the things that we make a mistake about is we think it's time that doesn't count. And so as a host, mm. you may be, you know, fixing your presentation or moving the chairs around or, you know, talking to staff to make sure that there's like, there's, you know, when the tea break is, um, if it's a, you know, if it's a conference. And what I always say to people is, is the moment your first guest arrives, like put everything down and walk away from the table and go over and greet them. And um, in those in those first seconds, people are walking in there. Everybody's thinking, do I want to be here? Is what's the vibe here? Is this a casual place? Is this fun? Can I make jokes or is this more serious? They're trying to figure out, you know, what are the norms here? And as a host, you have a huge opportunity to model how you want people to behave based on how you behave in that time that doesn't count. Um, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was going to ask, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, kind of the beginning of gatherings and stuff like that. What, what are some key things to remember as a gathering winds down so that mm -hmm. it can end on a high note? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, First, it mirrors the opening. Don't end on logistics. <laughs> yeah. So um, if you remember nothing else, <laughs> don't start or end on logistics. Um, but, you know, a couple of different things. So one is um, most gatherings don't end. They stop. Mm. And um, 
Oops. One of the things I should also tell you is I just had my second child three months ago. So you, <laughs> <laughs> you just woke up. Um, You're good. You know, most gatherings don't end. They stop. And, um, you know, the time that the clock runs out, I was at a conference recently where it's, you know, 2.50, it ends at three and the facilitator got up there and basically said, okay, she's made a few announcements and said, okay, you know, we're done here, folks. Thank you. And by thank you, she meant we're done. And people mm -hmm. looked around and kind of wondered like, you know, uh, is there anything else? And she kept, and she looked out again and she said, thank you, thank you. And finally people kind of, Sorry. You're good. Finally, people kind of picked up their bags and left. And the gathering, you know, didn't end. It stopped. Hmm. And mm -hmm. so one of the, th and we kind of assume that, that it'll end by a function of time. But part of the problem is that it is that people actually need a sense of closure. So one of the things that I, one of the things that I do in my book is I interview actually two Zen monks. Um, who do a lot of who do a lot of things with end of life kind of processes and rituals, and one of the things that they say is that we tend to avoid endings because we find them awkward or sad or you know just kind of you know more awkward than anything else. Mm -hmm. And um, and a great host basically helps people kind of acknowledge and face in very subtle ways um, that this thing is coming to a close. And so specifically, um, you know, if you're if you're running a meeting, it can be to kind of remind people, you know, what happened, what happened over the last hour and kind of go over it. Um, but also but when as you're going over it to not just go over it in like a um, in a content way, you know, we talked about this, this and this to also kind of remember the jokes people made or the funny moments and, 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 you know, do it in your own authentic kind of way, but kind of remember reminding people of different moments that, you know, that the group kind of gelled or, you know, a funny question that someone asked. Um, a second thing you can do is, uh, start signaling. I, I call it in the book, the last call. So in bars, you know, all over the world, there's this, the last call and in part because legally you have to close the bar at 2am or whatever time it is, but we can issue our own last call, which is a kind of a signaling that this is coming to a close, but letting people kind of wrap their mind around that it's, that it's ending. So conferences, you know, the Ted conference does this really well. Every year at the end of these five days, the very, very, very last thing they do is they ask a comedian, um, this year is Baratunde Thurston, to um, do a comedy show based on all of the talks of the last five days, yeah. um, you know, and making jokes and making fun of it. It also kind of makes people not take themselves so seriously. Um, and it's literally the way they end. <clears throat> so to think about in your own, you know, party or whatever it is, to think about how, how you want to end. Gotcha. And so one of the, the things that, yeah, one of the thing that I'm curious about is like in, in the midst of these meetings or in the midst of these gatherings, you know, one of the things that you talk about is the importance of, and you've even mentioned this before, is people being real and authentic in them. So what are, what are some ways that if you're, if you're hosting to keep people real and authentic? Mm-hmm. Um, so one is through the questions that you ask. Um, you know, when you, one of the uh, models that I love that I um, kind of invented with another friend is, is a model called 15 Toasts. 
And it's a simple way to basically get people often who don't know each other um, to share stories kind of, you know, quickly. So, um, so you, one is ask questions that help people answer based on stories or experiences that they have, because you, you can't really fake a story, right? And usually if people are listening, whenever anyone tells a story about some experience in their life, there's usually a lot of information behind it. And a good host asks follow-up questions. So if somebody says, you know, tell, you know, tell us a moment, um, in your, from your, like from before in your teenage years that really shaped you and somebody share, says, um, making the basketball team really shaped me or, um, you know, I traveled abroad for the first time with my family that, and I went to, you know, I don't know, Rome, I went to London and that really shaped me. A good host says, what was it about it that shaped you? Why, why was that important? And then maybe they say, well, I mean, the basketball team was the first time uh, I tried out three years before and I, I didn't make it each year. And I promised myself I would do it. And I realized that if I really work at something, I can actually improve. Like that's information. So a great host asks a lot of questions, but asks questions that help people find meaning. Um, and I, and I'll just say the second thing is in a work context, um, we often set ourselves up to kind of, um, show each other our best sides, you know, our elevator pitch or all of the things that's working in our startup or trying to basically like show how wonderful we are <laughs> or how mm -hmm. strong it is, or you, know, you may be trying to get investors, like there may be reasons for it. But another way in your work context is to encourage and to create a safe space, um, safe place for people to talk about what's not working. Um, and people get really excited to hear about that because there's an implicit ask to saying, okay, let's figure out how to make this work. And people feel much more connected to each other after a meeting when people honestly share what's not working rather than, you know, all the things that are going really well. Yeah. And so Priya, just as we're wrapping up, we always have a couple of quick questions that we always love to ask everybody. And the first one is what's one thing that is helping you either personally or professionally that you've started doing recently? Um, to be honest, it is, um, reading the newspaper every day. Mm -hmm. And that might sound like a simple answer, but I think things can get so busy that it's easy to kind of, you know, skip over that step. Um, and I, uh, have recently committed to reading the newspaper every day. Um, and, uh, and it really helps me. And, and, you know, even in this conversation, the reason I knew about the NFL meeting was because mm -hmm. I've committed to reading the newspaper. Every day. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's awesome. Um, and I think, I think, part of reading the newspaper is you're engaged in the issues of your time. And, you know, my lens is gathering and actually almost every important thing that happens in the world comes out of some kind of gathering, even if it's as simple as a meeting. And so, um, when I have a lens, but then it's grounded in what's actually happening in terms of current international events, um, it keeps me sharp. Sure. How, how do you learn best? Um, perhaps not surprisingly, given the topic of my book, I learned best through other people. Um, I, I learned best through people's kind of stories and experiences and, um, and sharing with me what they know. I, I, and I, I, and I, and people aren't, people are similar in this way. I remember stories. 
Um, and so when someone shares something about them uh, and something that happened in their life and then connected to a concept, um, I, I, I remember that. Well, Priya, we've had a great time talking with you today. If people want to pick up The Art of Gathering or learn more from you, where's the best place for them to find you? Um, they can uh, pick it up on uh, Amazon. It's pre-ordering. It's out May 15th. They can pick it up in their local bookstores after May 15th um, or on the Penguin Random House page. And uh, I tweet at Priya Parker. Um, and I'm starting to Instagram both, so at Priya Parker and um, at Art of Gathering Journal. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. It was a treat. Well, Caleb, I feel like I needed to do a radio announcer voice right there. It's fine. Um, so, Caleb, what was your takeaway from our talk with Priya Parker? I think just the biggest takeaway, and it may seem simplistic, is the importance of just being intentional about when you meet with people. So, talk to me more about that. So, having, having a plan for whenever you're going to meet with someone, not just meeting mm. to meet. I mean, because I could just think of you know, through, you know, just through my past of just realizing times to where I didn't necessarily have a plan and I'm just not going very well. That makes sense. But whether it's meeting with a team or meeting with someone on one on one, always having a plan of how the meeting is going to go and what you plan on talking about and stuff like that. So I I think oftentimes of uh, what some of the things she was saying, there are people and I'm sure you've experienced this too, who are just good at running meetings and and actually as she was talking i th- i was thinking back and i and i realized that the people who, who just naturally were good at that they do all the things that she was talking about and so having an agenda um having a definitive uh start time end time and kind of sticking to that um all those things um are, are things that inherently some of these people who do really great meetings mm-hmm. they do so yeah totally right and fitting with with the whole thing i think the other thing was and I'm sure this stood out to you too, is, you know, especially with us being in the church world, one of the things that you said you never want to start your meetings with is announcements. Oh my goodness. Close your meetings with announcements. And I thought we do that all the time. hundred percent. And so just starting to rethink, um, okay, how can we do things better so that we can re-engage people? hundred percent. I totally agree with you. Um, this is something that, that I run into a lot. And, like, by the way, you know, you guys know that we're both in church world. Happens in church world all the time. Um, where we start out our services with announcements. It, yeah, listen to the ep- that, 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 listen to that episode again. There, there's, just, there's just a lot of stuff in there. Definitely. Now, we have a great episode for you next week. Next week, we are going to be talking with Dave Adamson. Aussie Dave! Who is one of the pastors at North Point. Um, ministries and he kind of helps run all of the social media platforms for those as well he's also the host of the think orange podcast he runs his own instagram as you were mentioning aussie dave and we're going to talk with him about all of those different things how he gets it done the future of social media and the future of online platforms as well and how we can better engage with them so the best way to make sure that you don't miss our next episode is by subscribing to our podcast on whatever podcast player you use do it also if this episode has helped you in any way the best way that you can show your appreciation actually there's two ways you can show is not by dancing no if you want to dance let us know you can let us know 
by leaving a rating and writing a review of the podcast on iTunes. And that's helpful through sending it to your friends. You can do it in an email, an email or send it via text, whatever it may be as well. Also, let us know what you're currently learning, whether it's something from this week's episode, from past episodes. Let us know what you're learning, all of that stuff as well. Thanks so much for listening today to today's podcast. My name is Caleb Mason. My name is Todd Aixenball. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing. Deuces, y'all.